Uh, we asked for questions to be uh, submitted, and uh, I was sent uh, via uh, via the box that appeared here, and uh, Twitter, and uh, Facebook, and, and some of you emailed directly questions, and actually I have more questions than I know what to do with, uh, and we'll see how many of them uh, we can get through uh, this evening. I was glancing uh, through these questions uh, this afternoon, uh, and uh, many of them uh, deal uh, with the topic uh, that we've been covering this, um, this uh, fall, uh, the person of Christ, and, and in, it's the nature of the, of the beast that uh, uh, an opportunity to ask questions will, will raise uh, the perennial question, uh, the origin of evil or, or some such thing, and that question was there. And I may not get to some of those. Um, also conscious that uh, uh, we, we are fewer in number this evening than, than normal, and uh, some of our folks will be listening to this uh, online uh, as a recording. And indeed, many of these questions... Uh, in fact, didn't come from you, perhaps, uh, you meaning you in, in the room, uh, but actually came from folk who listen to this uh, broadcast every week uh, and sent in. So, some of these questions are quite perceptive, some are complicated, and, and some, frankly, are impossible to answer. Um, but uh, here's, um, uh, here's a question, and uh, there, are, there are many uh, questions just like this. Uh, in John 5, 19 and 30, and then another passage in John 10, 37, 38, Jesus talks about saying and doing only what his Father tells him or shows him to do. And these uh, verses uh, refer to Jesus saying something like, I have come uh, to do your will. Um, my father, um, I'm ad-libbing, but, but both these, uh, these references in John 5 and 10 say, say something of that nature. Uh, in reference to his deity slash humanity and his suffering and death as a human, uh, what was his divine nature doing as he went through the agony of crucifixion? Uh, that's a question that came uh, in, in several different forms. Here's another question uh, saying almost exactly the same thing. Uh, what was the role of Christ's divine nature during the incarnation? So uh, what we've been saying throughout this, uh, this semester is that Jesus has two natures that the biblical evidence is that Jesus is divine. He is as much divine as the Father is divine or as the Holy Spirit is divine. Uh, there is only one divine nature, and, and Jesus, the Son of God, uh, is in possession of that nature. But the Bible also represents Jesus as having a human nature. Uh, and that human nature ex begins its existence in space and time time in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary and, and uh, visibly at least at the time of his birth in Bethlehem and uh, we're about to enter into Advent season and the celebration uh, of the human nature uh, of Christ. Uh, so there are two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature and these two natures are always to be held in distinction from each other. We're not to confuse these two natures. But there is only one he, there's only one him, there's one person. Uh, so a lot of the emphasis uh, that we've been uh, giving uh, in this past uh, 12 weeks or so has been pretty much on the human nature of Jesus. Uh, because when we talked about the doctrine of God, which was last year, we talked about the divine nature of Jesus, um, because there is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. So the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so 
at that point we talked about the divine nature of Jesus and in this part of our course together we've given a lot of emphasis to the human nature of Jesus so the question and it came in, in in a slightly different language but it's the same question what was the role of the divine nature during the incarnation during Jesus' incarnate life. And actually, we could rephrase that question and ask, what is the role of the divine nature now uh, as, regards, uh, as regards the human nature of Jesus? Because Jesus still has a human nature. It is an exalted human nature. That is, it is not human nature in poverty, but it's human nature at the right hand of God. But it is still human nature hasn't been divinized. So, so he still has a human mind, he still has human affections, he still has a human body, he still has eyes and nose and, and, and teeth and hands and feet and so on. I mean, he's still a human, and he's a man, he's a, he's, he's a male figure. That, that humanity, that human nature still exists. And, and so Jesus is two natures in one person, two, two natures in what? The creeds called a hypostatic union. Uh, there is one, forgive me, one hypostasis, or, or let me change the language, there is one person. So what is the divine nature doing right now? Well, he's ruling. He's reigning. He's upholding the universe. He's governing all things. He's ensuring the outcome of providence. He he is doing everything. The divine nature of Jesus is doing everything that God is doing. So that was true when Jesus was in the womb of Mary. It was true when Jesus was born and lying in a stable in Bethlehem. It was true when Jesus was walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. It was actually true when the human nature, the body of Jesus, at least the physical body of Jesus, was dead and in a tomb. The divine nature was ruling and reigning and governing and in hypostatic union with a human nature, the physical part of that human nature was dead. Now that's a lot to take in, it's a lot to grasp. I'm not sure frankly that I understand what it is I'm saying. I'm just saying that that that, that is what the Bible, that's the evidence of the Bible points in that direction. So at every moment, the divine nature is doing what the divine nature is always doing. What God is always doing. Ruling, reigning, governing. At every moment in the lifespan of Jesus, right up until today, right now, when the human nature of Jesus is at the right hand of God and is coming again at the time of the second coming. Well, here's another question. Uh, Is there anything to be compared, uh, we, we won't comment on the grammar of this sentence, but is there anything to be compared between the two natures of Christ and the two natures of a Christian? No. <laughs> uh, the, the two natures of, uh, I mean, that comparison has, has been made, uh, the comparison between, between the the church as a body and uh, the comparison between, between uh, Jesus as the head and, and the church as, as the body of Christ, that comparison has been made uh, between the, the, the human body having a soul and a physical, uh, but, but, but none of these work. All of these are, are complete failures as far as comparisons uh, because this is altogether unique. There is no, there is no there, there is nothing to which you can compare the two natures, the hypostatic union, the two natures, one person of uh, Christ. So, so no. Here's another one that's along the same uh, line of thought. Uh, in John 2, uh, 24 
and 25 and other places in Scripture, Jesus' knowledge of what was in man is mentioned. Uh, comments that John makes uh, in the course of the gospel that Jesus uh, knew what was in man. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at the, um, at the reference. John 2 and uh, 24 and 25. Uh, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so there is at least the, the surface uh, interpretation of that is that, that, that John is saying that Jesus knew everybody. Like we need to interpret that. And then secondly, that he knew what was in man. Now, I'm not persuaded in either case, in John 2, 24, 25, that what John is saying is, is a statement about Jesus' omniscience. Right? In his human nature, Jesus does not know every human being. Right? In, his human, in his human nature, Jesus has a finite knowledge. So when Jesus was walking the sands of Palestine, in his human mind, right, just as in his divine mind, he knows everybody. And he knows everything and he knows it all at once. And that's what we usually refer to when we say, when we say Jesus knows everything about us. That's his divine mind. But he also has a human mind. And, and the question that we have to ask ourselves when we read the gospel records, perhaps the synoptic, Matthew, Mark, Luke, more than John. John sometimes looks at Jesus from above, and, and the Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to look at Jesus from below. Uh, and there is, there is a, a subtle difference between how John and the other three gospels uh, look at Jesus. It's the same Jesus, but they're looking at him and talking about him from different perspectives. And John begins right up at the top. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, but that's not, that's not how the other Gospels begin. They sort of begin from below and, and, and work upwards. The question, uh, which I haven't got to, is, is the human knowledge divine or knowledge given by the Holy Spirit. Is this human knowledge divine or knowledge given by the Holy Spirit? So the question, let me, let me try and sort out the question. The question is confronting a passage where Jesus seems to know something, something over and above what, what could have been ascertained simply by observation. Uh, so, something that's above the ordinary, some, something that may, that may suggest that this is divine knowledge. And, and my, my, my instinct is to say that when Jesus knows something, and we're talking about the human Jesus, the human mind of Jesus, that that knowledge is knowledge that's given to him either by the process of observation and deduction, right? So he could know what is in man simply because he knew the Old Testament, and the Old Testament will tell you what the nature of all mankind is, right? You, it, it, you don't need omniscience. You don't have to say, well, because he's God, he, he knows this information. We have to keep the natures in distinction. And very often in the Gospels, what is being presented to us is the human Jesus, who is also God, but it's the human Jesus who asks questions. You know, like, like at the tomb of Lazarus, you know, he asks, where have you laid him? Now, you can insert, right, in your commentary and in your Bible study, a little parenthetical statement. Well, of course, Jesus knew where they laid him because he was God. But actually... The question, I think, is being asked by the human Jesus. It's the human mind of Jesus that's asking this question. Where have you laid him? And, and, and it's, 
It's okay, I think, it's perfectly, it's perfectly orthodox to answer that question by saying, well, in his human mind, he didn't know where they had laid him, so he's simply asking, tell me where you've laid him. And, and when he does have information that's, that's over and above, say, information that you can glean from reading and studying the Old Testament, and Jesus not only read and studied the Old Testament, but, but I, I have a notion that Jesus remembered could, could memorize, you know, we don't know what the human brain is capable of without sin. What, what feats of memory, it's still, it's still a human thing, but what feats of memory are, are, are capable? I mean, I, I, went, uh, I went to hear Max McLean do um, uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters in Charleston a few months ago. And uh, it's an hour and a half long production, and it's, it's one man uh, doing the entire thing from beginning to end as a feat of memory alone. I mean, apart from anything else, as a feat of memory alone, it absolutely took my breath away. I mean, I was completely envious. I mean, I walk out the door and I, what, what did he just say? And, and, here's, and here was this actor um, being able to recite verbatim and, and as far as I could tell, with, flawlessly, uh, the entire book in, in an hour and a half on stage. Uh, that was a tremendous feat of, of memory. And I think when we're, when we're talking about the human Jesus, I think, I think there are lots of things that he knew simply because he had learned it from the Old Testament. And what he knew over and above that is information, I think, that's given to him by the Holy Spirit in his role as the mediator. At least that's been, that's been more or less um, what we've been suggesting throughout the, throughout the last uh, 12 or 13 weeks. Now, the ESV Study Bible, 2008... Uh, notes, right, the notes in the study Bible on, and, and there are three passages here, one in Mark, Mark 2, 8, Luke 5, 21, 22, and John 1, 48. I, I query John 1, 48. I think, I think whoever wrote this question is incorrect as far as what the ESV study notes are saying, but, but they are correct uh, as to what the ESV study notes say about Mark 2, 8 and Luke 5, 21, 22, seem to indicate that Jesus plugged into his divine mind. Please address this with regard to your teaching against Apollinarianism. Are the ESV notes wrong? I mean, far, far be it for me to say the ESV is wrong. Uh, but actually, I do, I, I, I do think that the ESV notes in, in both Mark 2.8 and Luke 5 are actually incorrect, and I would, I would beg to differ. Uh, I actually know the person who wrote these notes because it, it tells you in the in, at the beginning of the of the ESV study Bible, and uh, um, I, I take a different opinion. I I I I think personally that it is it is an incorrect way of viewing the humanity of Jesus. That at points where he needs extra information, he simply he simply gleans it from his divine nature. We would only ever default into that kind of reasoning as far as the human mind. We would never say that as far as where did Jesus get power to, to withstand temptation from. If, if you're going to say to me, he gets that power by plugging into his divine mind, all of you are going to be dismayed because Jesus isn't tempted the way you're tempted if that's the case. Because at the point of temptation, he can plug into his divine nature. Well, you know, that's, forgive me, but that's not playing fair, right? That's, that, that's, that's, I can't say he's been tempted in every point like as we are yet without sin, right? I, I think this, this defaulting into plugging into his divine nature is only done at the level of the of the knowledge of Jesus. And I think that's what the ESV study Bible is doing. And, and Kudos to those who read all these notes and pointed it out to me, and I'll, I've, I've made a note of it in my own uh, notes for future uh, reference. But yes, I, 
They are certainly different and contrary to what I said. You may be the judge of who is right, but, but, um, but yes, they are certainly um, opposite what, I, what I've been saying in the, in the last... Uh, Does that differ from defaulting to the Holy Spirit? Um, that is not me, although it's the same sound. That's fine. Um, um, I think it is perfectly okay to say that Jesus gets information or power or help from the Holy Spirit in the same way that Moses or Elijah got information and help from the Holy Spirit. And, and in that sense, Jesus is in the line of the prophets. And one of the things that both the Gospels and Paul are at pains to say is that Jesus is another Moses. And that's, a, that's a huge issue in the New Testament, that, that he is a, a kind of second Moses. I am not saying that he's not divine. Please don't hear me ever saying that. I'm just, I'm just talking about his human nature and the way that his human nature relates to the divine nature. Here's another question along the same line. In regard to the dual nature of Jesus, please discuss the miracles performed by Jesus, i.e. the divine or human Jesus' natures. Um, this is your question, I think. And um, um, yes, same issue. I, I think that how, how did Moses part the Red Sea? Where did he get the power from to part the Red Sea? I mean, that's a pretty... I mean, if he, if he, if he did it as Cecil B. DeMille said, he did it. I, I mean, you've got wall of water and, a, and a, you know, a dolphin and a whale staring at you here, you know, and, and fish on this side, and you're walking through on dry land. Where did, where did Moses get that power from? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. But he is, he is gifted by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. Where did Elijah or Elisha get the power to perform miracles? I mean, I mean to throw an axe into the river and it floats. Where, where does that power come from? And it comes from the Holy Spirit. At neither point are we going to say that, that, that it's their divine nature because they don't have a divine nature. So... so so we shouldn't be saying that about Jesus either. Jesus has a divine nature, but, but he fulfills the role of the mediator in his capacity as one who is human. He is supernaturally gifted, more so than Elijah or Moses, but not in distinction from would be my, would be my um, argument. Here's another one. Um, how do we reconcile the limited human mind of Jesus with his knowing that divine power went out of him when touched by the sick woman uh, in Luke chapter 8? You know, he's in a crowd of people and, uh, and uh, he, he knows, he realizes that power has left him because she has touched the hem of his uh, uh, garment. And again, my, my, my answer to that is that you don't have to resort to saying that it's his divine nature uh, being, being somehow plugged into his human nature uh, that, that he knows that. Presumably, presumably that, that, that in and of itself is not different in, in kind, though it may be different in degree, than, than, than the, kind of, the kind of things experienced by Moses or, or, um, or Elijah. Uh, Moses coming down from the mountain and he's glowing. You know, it's, it's, it's not something, it's not, he's not being divinized. Um, extraordinary things happen uh, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think that's how I would uh, uh, address that. Well, th there are many, there are many, there were many questions along that same, uh, same line of, of, uh, of thought. 
Here are some different kinds of questions uh, still on Christology. Uh, You may have answered this question a couple of weeks ago uh, with reference to John 20, uh, 19 and 20. This is is the case of uh, Jesus' um, resurrection appearance and uh, the, the disciples... First of all, without Thomas, and then with Thomas, so there are 10, and then there are 11 disciples uh, on on successive Sabbath uh, evenings, and uh, Jesus appears in the room, that that incident in John 20. Uh, Verse 19, the disciples met, and the doors were shut. Jesus came and stood in their midst, and then in verse 20, he showed them both his hands and his side, And, and the question is, Did the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus change after his resurrection? Well, I I want to rephrase the question. Uh, The divine nature of Jesus never changes. The human nature of Jesus is always changing. It is still changing. His human mind is still growing in knowledge, just as your human mind in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth will continue to grow. Right? You will constantly be assimilating knowledge. Right? It, and, and you don't get to heaven and then it's all just static. Right? I, think, I think you will continue to acquire information in the new heavens and in the new earth. You will always be explorers going where no man has gone before. Right? Because we were created. And, and that... that explorative, inquisitive uh, nature of ours. Now, it, it, it is tainted by sin as everything else, but, but that in itself is part of the image of God in us. Now, so let me rephrase the question. Did the human nature of Jesus change after the resurrection? And I think the question is being asked because he appears to be able to walk through a locked door. Right? Well, actually the text doesn't say that. What the text says is the doors were locked and he appears in the room. Now, it, it does, right? So exegetically, if we're going to be strict, if we're going to adhere to strict exegesis, there is no mention, there is no mention in, in the text itself that Jesus um, actually passed through the door. So if this was a movie, I mean, you would, you would see him, you know, passing through a wooden door, right? Now, some of you are saying, some of you are saying, and I, I can hear you saying it because I can see the bubbles above your head and I can read them. Um, Jesus is God, so why couldn't he just pass through the door? And that's, that's not my point. Physical human nature doesn't pass through locked doors. When Jesus slept on a bed, he didn't fall through it. Right? He, had a, he, had a, he had a tangible human, tactile human body that you could touch. It had substance. It, 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 it obeyed the laws of gravity, except when he was performing miracles like walking on the, on the Sea of uh, Galilee. But, but he's not unique in that. Others in the Old Testament had done similar kinds of, of, of nature uh, miracles. The the, the one thing about the resurrection body of Jesus is that it, that it seems to have the property of appearing and disappearing. Now, is that a property of the human nature or, or is that just something else? And, it, and that may be just something else that's happening. I mean, he does, he does seem to disappear on the Emmaus Road uh, when, after he's had supper with these two disciples um, Cleopas and, and the other one and, and then, then he vanished out of their sight and suddenly in the gospels he's up in Galilee and there's no record of him having actually walked all the way to Galilee um, now that, that and, and here we're in the realm of conjecture but I do think, I do think that those phenomena if, if they are phenomena about the human nature of Jesus that suggests that perhaps the human body may be subject to different laws 
of physics in the resurrected state. Now, there are still human bodies, right? There are still localized human bodies in one place. They, they, still, they're still, they still have shape. They still have contour. They have a zip code. They are, they are, they are, they are tactile. Um, they, they, they obey certain laws of gravity. I mean, when Jesus in his resurrection body walked, I mean, he didn't fall through the ground. He didn't, he didn't appear out in Australia or somewhere. Um, right? So it, it's, 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 still, it's still a human body, but maybe a human body that has, I mean, who knows? D- different laws of physics. That would be wonderful to think about. You know, I often wonder about what's on the other side of the universe. And, and, and I anticipate a, a new heavens and a new earth, which will be even more astonishing than this one. And if you have a physical body, even a resurrected physical body, um, now you have eternity, of course, but it's going to take you a long time to get to the other side of the universe. And, and there's still the issues about oxygen and breathing and, and all the rest of it, perhaps even in a... Uh, new heavens and uh, new earth environment because even in Jesus' resurrection body he eats breakfast at the Sea of Galilee with the disciples so he's eating in a resurrected body now I know I can tell from your faces there are gazillions of questions none of which I can answer uh, but I do, think, I do think that it opens a little uh, just, just a little window And it might say to us things like, you know, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. And that our existence in the new heavens and new earth uh, will have aspects to it that perhaps we haven't even dreamt could be possible. But it is still a physical existence. And a human existence. Did Jesus have a soul? And then, and then uh, a, a sort of byproduct of the question, does Jesus have a soul? And the answer is yes and yes. Of course, is the answer. Is a soul a necessary part of humanity? And if you say no to that, then we've got other problems. Um, <laughs> But if your answer, if your answer to that is that, that we are created by God to be physical and soulish beings, then yes, Jesus has a soul. Now the question you know, begs several other questions, and the question is, we, we still tend to think of soul in more of a Greek philosophical way than a biblical way. So we, we talk about having a soul. And I, I think a better way of saying it from a biblical, biblical point of view is that we are a soul. It's not that I have a soul. I am a soul. A soul is what, is what makes me alive. Nefesh in Hebrew is more akin to the idea of living than it is to anything else. A nefesh is a word that's used both of man and animals. Uh, which begs another question, uh, which, which is, if I can find it, um, h- hold on, I'm, I'm going to get these all out of order. Uh, if you're listening online, I'm just rummaging through a whole bunch of papers and ripping half of them as I'm going along. Um, um, yes, here's the question. Uh, and it's a follow-up, the question says, uh, not to Center Point School of Theology, but to a children's sermon. Uh, if dogs and cats will be in heaven as part of God's creation, will rats and snakes, vermin underlined, be there too? Well, uh, I mean, interesting and fascinating as that question is, it's, it's actually not a frivolous question. It's, it's actually a very serious question. Um, you know, we live, in a, we live in a culture, of course, that's increasingly giving attention uh, to uh, uh, animals and, uh, and folk because of all kinds of reasons, 
often have closer links with animals than they do with human beings because human beings have hurt them, whereas animals often have not. Um, and uh, we're in an age of pet cemeteries and, and so on. And, and no one loves pets more than I do, uh, so I'm, I'm right in that league. Uh, I've formed over the years uh, extremely close ties uh, to various pets, and I can still remember uh, dogs that I had as a teenager, uh, and, and all the way up to uh, Luther uh, in my life at the minute. Um, I think the question is often, uh, is often misconstrued. The issue is misconstrued for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is the whole, the whole question about um, what, what, what is a soul. And, and, I mean, if I had a penny or a cent for every time I've heard people say, you know, animals don't have souls, as if, as if this was written in stone. There's a, there's a text. It's in Genesis 83.6 that says animals do not have souls. Uh, you know, where, where this, this, this mantra comes from, um, actually the word soul in Hebrew, nefesh, as I've just said, is, is the same word that's used of, of living creatures as it is of, of Adam and Eve. Right? So, that, so that notion is not a biblical notion, it's just something that's, that's grown uh, in the church over the years. Um, I, th- I think once you, once, you see, once you see that soulishness is more akin to, to animate, conscious life, you know, and I've, I've heard people say animals don't have consciousness. I have no idea what they mean when they say that. I, I mean, that's a statement that's easy to make, but I have no idea what, what that means or, or however you would ever prove that, that they have no consciousness that they, are, that they are them and not, and not the mutt that's standing beside them. Uh, the, the, you know, I don't want to get too deep into that. But, but from another point of view, let's approach it from an entirely different point of view. I, 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 think, I think in part it's misconstrued by an unbiblical understanding of what a soul is and what soulishness in the Bible is. But from another point of view, you go to a passage like Romans 8.21 that says that the, uh, that the whole creation is groaning and travailing in birth, waiting for the renewal of all things. In other words, right in the center of the most important chapter, perhaps in the Bible for some of us, Romans chapter 8, is, is Paul's picture of a renewed cosmos. Right? It's, not a, it's not just a renewed heaven, but a renewed creation of of earth and, and planets, and I know, the, I know the book of Revelation says there'll be no more sun, but, but, I'm, but seriously, this is the book of Revelation that's about, about pictures and images more than it is about science, saying there won't be a, a, a... And what was that yellow thing in the sky about four o'clock this afternoon? After, after three or four days of complete darkness, and, and I thought I was back in, in Britain in winter, uh, suddenly this sun appeared, and, and everything looked so much better. Um, I, you know, what, what are you expecting the new heavens and, and new earth to look like? You know, will there be rocks and trees and rivers and fish? Well, no, because the book of Revelation says there'll be no more sea, right? So there are no dolphins or whales or octopuses or octopi or whatever. Um, and, and really, is that, is that, is that what, what the book of Revelation is really trying to tell us? And I, I think, no, that's not what the book of Revelation is trying to tell us. Sea, uh, I think, in Revelation is a reference to uh, part of the Old Testament temple and uh, 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 the, the lava where washing rituals were done. It was often called the sea, and, and, and there will be no need for that in, in the new heavens and new earth because there will be no temple because everything will be temple. And um, so Romans 8.21 is suggesting a renewal of the cosmos. So I fully expect to see all of God's creation. And I mean all of it. Uh, In the new heavens and uh, and new earth. And it will be a new creation uh, which will not be threatening to us in any way. Um, Another question, um, 
What did... Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did Jesus do the three days he was in the tomb? Well... Um, we haven't actually talked about the resurrection yet. And that's what we will be talking about in the first few weeks of February. Before we go on to talk about the work of Christ, we, we need to wrap up a, a few more things about the person of Christ. And so we need, we need to address just briefly the resurrection. But here's a question. What did Jesus do uh, the three days he was in the tomb, or, or more precisely, the 36 hours or so that he was in the tomb. Three days, according to Jewish uh, reckoning, from Friday evening till Sunday morning. Uh, address preaching the gospel to the dead. And uh, I think the question has in view, uh, you know, the passage in, in 1 Peter 3, um, uh, from verse 8 to, what, verse 22 or so, uh, in that, in that uh, middle section of, of the third chapter of First Peter, when, when Peter says uh, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison as he did in the days of Noah and so on. And that's a, that's a, that's a famous passage, a difficult passage. Uh, it's a passage uh, concerning which there are multiple different uh, interpretations. My own view of that passage is that there does seem to be something chronological taking place because Peter mentions uh, the death of Jesus, mentions the resurrection of Jesus, and mentions the ascension of Jesus. And then in between the death and resurrection of Jesus, he mentions this preaching to the spirits in prison. So it does, it does look on the surface as though Jesus is addressing something that is chronological, and therefore, that that preaching to the spirits in prison is something that happens in between the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, that's not something I want to die for. If you, if you, if you inflict pain on me, I'm going to yield that interpretation immediately. But it, but it, it does appear to me on the surface that that, that passage is, is being spoken of in a chronological fashion. In which case, what does preaching to the spirits in prison and then the reference to Noah mean uh, and and that's uh, you know that's more than i can handle here but but let, let me just let me just cut through all all of the all of the stuff here j just for the sake of trying to answer this question and my view is that jesus in his pre-resurrection state or, or maybe in his resurrection state, more likely, but before that resurrection appears to Mary Magdalene, that Jesus goes and announces his triumph to the spirits in prison. And the spirits in prison are those who, are, who, have, been, who have not believed in Jesus uh, under the Old Testament and have been consigned to hell waiting for the final judgment and so on. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a preaching of the gospel with an attempt to, to engage in some kind of post-mortem evangelism. I do not believe in post-mortem evangelism. After death, there is the judgment. And so there's no second chance. But I do believe that it's perfectly consistent uh, with what the Bible teaches elsewhere, that Jesus can announce his victory over the forces of darkness, over the spirits in prison, and do so in that interval between, between death and visible resurrection to Mary Magdalene and, and, and the others. Now, you know, probably among my colleagues here, I, I'm, you know, we may not be of the same opinion about that passage, and, and, and some of you may, may believe that, that the passage should not be interpreted chronologically, and that Peter is actually referring to Jesus preaching through Noah in the days of Noah, right? And the spirits in prison are those who, who disbelieve in Noah's time. Um, it's a complicated passage. Um, but what did Jesus do in, in the time he was in the tomb? Uh, I, I think it's perfectly consistent with what Scripture seems to say, that he announces his victory uh, over the forces of uh, of darkness. He spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing 
over them uh, in uh, the cross. Well, I have time maybe for a couple uh, more questions before we bring this to a close. We're going to finish at 7.30. Um, Here's another question. Uh, In your opinion, uh, do you believe there will be sincere belief in Christ by ones who will not be elect? Well, again, the, the question is, 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 a, is a, a, a little... Um, I, I, I want to reinterpret the question a little. If you're not elect, you will not believe. So let, let, me, let, me, let me pull the word election out of it entirely. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps the intent of this question was to ask, do you believe there will be sincere belief in Christ by those who never hear the gospel? I think that, that's probably the intent of this question. So the person who lives on the other side of the world... Uh, in some far-off, lonely island uh, who has never heard the gospel. Actually, it could be a neighbor, but, but for the sake of argument, let's, let's, let's just put him on this, on this remote island, and he's never, he's never ever heard the gospel, and, and can he be saved? Uh, it was, um, it was uh, um, Hans Kung, I think, uh, who uh, propounded a view called anonymous Christianity, um, that, that you could become a Christian, that you could believe, have a sincere faith uh, in a Jesus that you'd never heard of, basically. Um, so that the, the devout Hindu or the devout uh, Muslim or the, or the devout uh, uh, pantheist or, or whoever he is uh, could come to saving faith. And, and actually, I, I, my, my own view is that the Bible says a categorical no to that. Uh, I think Paul is saying no to that in Romans 10. How shall they believe without a preacher? Right? And how shall they preach unless they've been sent? But how shall they believe without a preacher? And I think Paul is saying that there is no possibility of faith apart from the hearing, the actual physical hearing and responding to the gospel. If I thought for one moment that you could be saved without sending the gospel, why would you send missionaries overseas? I mean, far, far better to take their chances never hearing of Jesus than actually hearing and then saying no. I, t- I, th- I think you've got a better chance than ne- having never heard of Jesus. I think, I think that view would be the death of missions entirely. Um, so so I, I think that the Bible, um, the Bible teaches categorically that there is no, there is no salvation uh, apart from the physical hearing and and response to the gospel. That makes it all the more imperative um, that folks like Darius go to Poland, that uh, folks like, uh, like uh, give, me some, give me some examples here, that folks like, um, what's, our, what's our friend's name in Scotland? Um, Athel Rennie uh, go to Scotland and preach the gospel. Uh, and why we need to pray for and support um, m- missionaries actually going to the uttermost parts of the world to engage uh, in uh, evangelism. I think I have time for one more. Um, I still don't understand what begotten means. And you need to take a number <laughs> uh, and wait in line uh, because I don't think anybody understands what begotten means. Uh, Jesus was begotten of God. Could you please explain what this word means in relationship to uh, Christ? Well, begotten is a reference to the divine nature of Jesus. This is not, this is not a reference. You, we don't use the word begotten with regard to the, the human nature of Christ. He was, he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and he was born uh, so there was a time when the human nature of Jesus was not, right? So, so there is a moment in time when God uh, creates the human nature of Jesus, and he does it out of Mary, out of Mary's stuff, uh, as, the, as, the confession, as the creed, uh, the, the Chalcedonian creed says. Um, but begotten here is a reference to the divine nature uh, of Jesus. And begotten is a well, it's a King James word. Right? So if you're in the King James Version, you, you, you read the only begotten Son of God. 
Do you remember a year ago we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity and we talked about the doctrine of God and we said that each person in the Trinity has a distinctive attribute. Now they're all, all three persons are the one God. There is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But each person, each distinction within the Trinity has its own property. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. Now that's as far as at least sane theologians have gone, because, because if you try to go further than that, you're dropping off the cliff. That much, I think, is, is relatively obvious. One is called a father, and one is called a son, and another is called a spirit. But, but for the minute, let's talk about the father and the son. One is called a father, and one is called a son. And in our world, right, in, in our experience, fathers pre-exist sons. Sons are the offspring of their fathers. That's what, that's what we mean by the relationship of father-son. God calls himself father and he calls Jesus son. So monogenes in Greek was rendered begotten or only begotten. Today, I mean in your ESV Bible, and we've, we've already suggested it's not infallible, but at least the notes are not infallible, um, in the ESV Bible, we, we don't say only begotten to, to translate monogenes anymore. We, we, we say one and only. One and only is a distinction of uniqueness. Only begotten is a relationship of origin. Now, if you, if you go down this road and you, and you suggest that monogenes means something to do with origin then you're heading into trouble and, and heresy eventually because you're going to suggest that, that Jesus' deity derives itself from the Father's deity and, and that's not where you want to go. Right? I mean, that's, that's just not where you want to go because there is only one deity. Right? So the deity of Jesus is not somehow inferior to the deity of the Father or... You, you, and you certainly don't want to say, along with Arianism, remember Arianism and semi-Arianism, there was a time when the son was not, right? That's, that was Arianism. And you don't want to be saying that because Jesus has always existed. His divine nature has always existed because there is only one divine nature. So uh, the, uh, in, in the, only, the only thing that theologians have been prepared to say is, Each person of the Trinity has a distinct attribute. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. How helpful that is, is debatable. But what does begotten mean in reference to Jesus? Take a number. 